1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our series called Being Built Together. Being Built Together. We'll be looking today specifically at verses 1 through 17. When you get there, say amen. Verse 1, for my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not, uh, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you have believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. For I planted, and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation then what has been laid down? And that foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if anyone's work that he has built survived, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Amen. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we come to you today, Lord, and even in reading this, Lord, you can feel the weightiness of Paul's instruction. You almost can anticipate or expect a heavy-handedness on the very issues that the Corinthian church is experiencing. But I pray, Father, you would prepare us in such a way right now, Father, that we would not look at your correcting of us as a means of shaming us, but more so calling us to look up at your glory allowing us to see that when you love someone that sometimes discipline or oftentimes discipline is a means to remind them of that love. So I pray this day, Father, would your spirit, would your spirit use your word to um, produce in us the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness not simply in position but in practice, that we would be able to live out the very things that you have called us to, embracing the identity that you have purchased for us and freely give to us and that we will cast off any other substitutes, Lord, that pale in comparison in who you've said or what you've said about us and who you've been to us. 
I ask for your help this morning. Father, make it clear and plain. Let me get out of the way so that you may increase and I may decrease. Father, only through your help would anything profitable come out this morning. Your people do not need to hear eloquent speech. They need to experience a powerful God. So we ask that you, by your grace towards us, would provide just that break bread for us this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You all may be seated. As I mentioned before, we're continuing in our series uh, called Being Built Together. And this morning we are focusing on uh, another core value of ours called intentional margin. Uh, Intentional margin simply means this, that we simplify. We believe that uh, people are more than what they can contribute. We strive to lovingly prioritize the comprehensive health of people for the betterment of our church. A commitment to simplify over busyness allows us to do a few things great instead of many things good. You may ask, what does that have to do with the text this morning? Well, uh, we're going to see that, um, that as we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that there is a reality that people can sim- that, that we can often view people um, as or value people simply for what they can produce for us and not for who they are. I was reminded this week in just study of a sermon I came across a while ago by Martin Luther King Jr. called Love and Forgiveness. And this was written on May 20th of 1964. And this was one of the several sermons that MLK Jr. had written on the topic of love and forgiveness. And within it were so many jewels, but one in particular that caught my attention had to do with this idea of the issue of ignorance. He states in this sermon that nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. When Martin Luther King Jr. said this, it was in the context of explaining uh, the, rational, the rationalization uh, of the enslavement, mistreatment, and vilification of African Americans by the white community. African American slaves were thought to be an inferior species and, so, and thus deserving of their faith. And so written in our Constitution was this formula for representation of the states where every man gets a single vote and the slaves were considered to be three-fifths of a person and not considered to have rights at all, as well as women were meant to have no rights at all. Uh, We recognize right now the pure folly uh, of that way of thinking that those who did it were indeed sincere in their ignorance and were thought to be conscientious in their stupidity. What does that mean? It means that it was the world as they thought it was and that It should be. You see, sincere ignorance can be summed up like this, that you don't know what you don't know. Because you don't know it, you can't see anything past what you don't know. It points to a blindness that exists. And conscientious stupidity is wishing to do what is right, especially as it relates to our work and our duty and doing those things very thoroughly and yet working against the right thing to actually do. It's a call for us or for people to educate themselves and not blindly accept the false beliefs or misinformation. And it's important to think critically critically and to question uh, what we hear as a means of avoiding uh, the ability for us to be misled. You see, there are three types of ignorance. There's factual ignorance, meaning that, that there's this absence of knowledge of some fact. There's object ignorance, meaning that we're unacquainted with some object or person. But there's also technical ignorance, 
uh, which is simply the absence of knowledge uh, that would inform us of how we are to act. Brothers and sisters, the deception uh, here often lurks in between the truth and a blatant lie. That somewhere in the middle lies this, this, this understanding or this idea that makes it sometimes hard to recognize. Uh, we've heard the statement, ignorance is bliss. But ignorance is not bliss when it comes to our spiritual lives. Ignorance can have a devastating impact on the, our relationship with God and our relationship with others. It can lead us down a road towards losing a sense of who we actually are in God's eyes. And so today, as we continue our series, I want to draw our attention to this very one thing, that misplaced identity leads to misguided living, but grace can find it again. Let me say it again. Misplaced identity leads to misguided living, but grace can find it again. First point is this. Misplaced identity leads to misguiding living. Uh, Paul says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The idea of misplacing something is simply, it simply means um, to put something in the wrong place and uh, resulting in a temporary loss. How many of you have had something that you've held tightly to, like your keys, and then in a moment of time when you needed to use those keys, you simply couldn't find them? Here we see this continuation of Paul's address to the people of God as he says that um, uh, as he doesn't open up this text with a denigration of their salvation, but rather uh, uh, pointing to the misplacement of their Christian identity. You see, our nature, it has to do with our capacity either to serve self or God. And he's not talking about our nature. He's talking about how do you see yourselves? Do you see yourselves through the lenses of what God has done for you and provided for you? And, 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 and the reality is, is that it's easy for us to, in the day-to-day -day routine of life, to find ourselves taking on identities that were not purchased for us or provided for us, but things that we can accrue in, and, 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 and things that we can identify in that are outside of God. He says, brothers and sisters, as an affirmation of their belonging, to God. In our culture, we like things nice and neat. We like packages. We like labels. And so when we see him address them as brothers and sisters and we see what follows, oftentimes it doesn't fit into our categories or our boxes. We like the ease of being able to define something and label it. And so when we think about the Christian community, oftentimes we remove or reject the very people who just don't fit within our labels. The reality here is that Paul is addressing a people who, though in nature, had become new creations for God, had misplaced their identity and had began to live outside of who God had actually called them to be. Paul will say that in, in Christ that we are new creatures, new creatures. But what happens when new creatures don't live like new creatures, but they live like the old way in which God has saved them from? Do we have a category for, for, for the reality that in Christianity there's this messiness, there's this reality that though we've been saved, we are perfectly justified in God's sight. However, the process of growing into our faith is one that is slow and arduous. How many of us have dismissed 
other brothers and sisters in Christ because it seems as though their sanctification is stagnant, but what's really stagnant is our, or what's really hindered is our ability to actually see what God is doing in their life in his timing and at his pace, at his pace. You see, identity, unlike nature, has to do with seeing ourselves through the eyes of God. And how difficult it is for you and I to have an alignment with how we view ourselves and how God sees us. This is about reflecting who God is. When you think of identity, think of it as what what reflection is my life pointing towards? Who is my life pointing towards? And the reality for all of us is that we will either fall in one or two places. One, we will live a life that points to self, or we will live a life that points to God. You see, identity can be misplaced when we choose to search for something that seems better than God and something that God hasn't already provided us. The consequences are that we end up enlisting ourselves into the service of another master. This is the danger of identity misplacement is that we end up giving ourselves to something that's so far less and superior to God. So he says that identity, when misplaced, it, 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 it points to a narrative that the rest of the world looks at us and says, okay, what does it truly mean to follow Christ? It goes into the reality that every culture has an identity narrative. Corinth at this time, their identity narrative was this, that their value or your value was directly connected to your productivity. What you could produce on your own is what gave you significance. Those that could excel, those that were gifted, were given a higher or seen to have higher value and greater significance than those who couldn't. You see, status was obtained through occupational prestige, income or wealth or education or religious purity or family or ethnic group position or even local community status. People measured themselves on the standard of one another than by the standard that God had said um, exists. America culture isn't so much different, though. When we think of our culture, when we think of the narratives that we, are, uh, um, uh, that we are constantly bombarded with, we may be able to say that, uh, or we probably heard it's this to be true, be your true self. Strive for greatness. You are what you produce. How many of us from growing up were taught that the pathway towards success was through educational accomplishment? That from a very young age, the vision and picture was that as you grow up, college was the indicator or the, the key barometer for any potential success in your life. And so every day from birth all the way up until high school and through college, you were constantly believing what we, many of us found out to be the lie, that college degrees were the promise of actual success. And where did it leave us? Come on now. That vision of success, for some, it led to maybe a good paying job. But for many of us, it led to a bunch of debt and a degree that was useless 
And now we had to go and educate ourselves further in something that we actually wanted to actually do. Uh, There's these narratives that we have that are just ingrained in us. And we think that just because we come to Christ that we are impermeable to these narratives taking over our minds and convincing us that there's a better way other than God's way. The reason why these things are promoted to us, y'all, is because uh, we believe that dignity, this state or quality of being worthy or of honor and respect is not something given freely to us by God, but something that must be gained by our own works. By allowing accolades and accomplishments and achievements to primarily be the thing that defines us, we are simply looking for our value. We're simply acting on the belief that God's life for me is not as good as the life that I could build for myself. That God is somehow withholding good from us. That, that, That we then now have to go and say, God, because you haven't given me this, I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And I've got to strive and strive and wear myself thin in order just to be seen as something in the eyes of mere men. Tim Keller says it like this, that we're not really proud of having money. We're proud of having more money than someone else. We're not really proud of being smart. We're proud of being smarter. Any identity achieved rather than received has to exclude others in order to make us feel good about ourselves. And so the reality is, is that if, 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 if in, in an effort for me to be propped up and exalted and to be seen as great, I've got to also push down other people who don't meet the expectation or the standards or have not achieved what I have achieved for myself. There's a Christian rap race. I want to be honest with y'all that even as a pastor, I have to constantly fight the expectations of what a pastor should look like within celebrity culture. That we see 10 or 15 people propped up and we see them writing all these books and we see them traveling all these worlds. And you can easily be convinced that if you're not on that track, that somehow God is withholding something good from you. I've got to preach. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. That part of God's plan for my life is for me to be faithful, but not to look at the standards or the, or the track that people lay out for you and say, if you don't look like that, then you're not worthy. We was in prayer this past Wednesday, and we heard brother and sister talk about and just confess the realities of what it's like to be in rooms where you feel disqualified. What it's like to be in rooms that... Uh, You look at your track record, you look at your reputation, you look at all of the things that you achieved, and they pale in comparison to everybody else that's in there. I know I'm not the only one that uh, wrestles with imposter, imposter syndrome. This reality that entering a room with a person with PhDs and seven-figure salaries somehow makes me far less of a human being because I don't have those things. That's a real, real issue. And it's just as much of an issue 
as thinking that because I have those things that I can't enter a room with people who don't have those things at all and not see them through the lens that they too were made in the image of our God. That they have inherent value. And that my relationships should not only be with people that are like me or that are within the socioeconomic status in which I'm accustomed to, but that as believers we can reach down low or not even reach down low, we can walk on into places amongst people who society would deem as worthless, castaways, throwaways. And they can eat at our dinner table, not just outside at our porches. That we can invite them into this building, even if they don't have the nicest clothes and the prettiest of complexions, but yet they're hungry for our God. What would the church look like if we embraced, uh, if we rejected what society holds up as valuable and we really believed and embraced what God has said about us? What God has said about all his people, that we are both a diverse group of people, not just ethnically, but socioeconomically. Paul says that this is the life, this is the life that you are rejecting, and you're rejecting it for the idol of self-improvement. Building ourselves up seems like a better idea because we think it's manageable. It gives us this illusion of control. Sister Corey said this, she said, the reason why other things seem like better options than God is because our idols don't challenge us. Idols don't talk back. They don't have opinions. They don't rub us the wrong way. They do simply what, they give us exactly what we are looking for all the time. At least that's the deception of it. That they're harmless. That they're safe. But if you serve that idol long enough, you'll find that that idol is insufficient of actually satisfying you. That it demands that you keep coming to it because it's, it does not have the ability or the capacity to actually satisfy you completely. You run to alcohol to soothe you and to comfort you, and for a moment it does. But then you've got to come back and you've got to purchase a little bit more. And you've got to drink a little bit more to capture that feeling. There ain't no kids in here, okay. We run after thinking that physical intimacy with somebody who is not our spouse will satisfy us. And in that moment, it does. But then we're left after that moment with the guilt and the shame of what we've done. And for a while, we may say, I'm not going to do that again. But then it comes calling and calling you back. And that DM that you thought you had blocked creeps on in. And you find yourself in that vulnerable moment again, realizing that, dag, I never looked to God to satisfy me. So that void still exists. And because that void still exists, this moment and this opportunity seems so much better to indulge in, to ultimately wait patiently for our God and to look to him to satisfy us. Paul is saying idols demand that we serve them. But not only that, he points to that your idols have not profited you, profited you in the way that you think they have. On the outside, you look to these people, these leaders, these gifts as an, um, a means of attaching yourself to them for significance. 
but all they've done is made you feel better about yourself temporarily. On the outside, people see you and they may look to you to be mature and spiritual, but on the inside, based on what God sees, he sees something completely different. Paul says, you know, What's loving for me right now, what's loving for God is to truly expose not simply what is on the outside, but what's on the inside. Paul says that you think that you are spiritual. I can't even I can't even address you on your own definition. In God's standards, you are immature. By God's standards, you are an infant in Christ. And I think when we hear that, we think that Paul is is. Um, it's calling them a bad name. See, the reality amongst the kingdom of God and for Christians is that uh, when we come to faith in Christ, we all are babes in Christ. It, it bothers me when a person who has literally been walking with Jesus um, for a year now thinks that because they've accumulated information that they now should be seen as mature. Maturity is not the accumulation of any information. It's the application of the information you have. It's your ability to look at all of life through the lenses and the worldview of the mind of Christ that Pastor Tim uh, preached to us last week, the mind that's been provided for us so that we can live out our faith and be uh, transformed by a real and present power. It's, brothers and sisters, what would the church look like if people who had just come to know the Lord or people that have been walking with the Lord for a few years would stop waiting for somebody to come and scoop them along and say, hey, can you help me, can you help me grow in my walk with Jesus? I, I know you've been walking with the Lord. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not expecting you to be able to answer all my questions, but, but you clearly have to know something that I don't know yet and I want to know. Can you walk with me? Can you observe my life? Can you teach me about what it means to follow Jesus? But on the flip side, what about those of us who have known Jesus for a long time? What would it look like if we, brothers and sisters, who've known Christ for a long time, invested in the next generation? That in this church, those of us who have been walking with Jesus would come alongside those recent baptisms, those people who have said, I want to know God more, and say, hey, I would love to get some time with you. I would love to just spend time with you and just to get to know you and allow you to get to know me. I want to invest in you. And we as a church stop waiting. So it would actually put into practice what it looks like for us to simply consider somebody else above ourselves and stop waiting on somebody else to make a step towards us, but we would make a step towards them. Discipleship is not a one person pouring into another. Discipleship is mutual edification. It means that regardless of how, how long you've been following Jesus, that there may, probably is something that I can learn from you. There's a way that God may use you to speak into my marriage. There's a way that God may use you to help me see something more clear and more beautiful about who God is in the early stages of your walk that I may have forgotten about having walking with him for these last few decades. The issue is not being a babe in Christ. The issue is um, remaining a babe in Christ. The old saints would actually, when someone came to faith, they would hand them over a glass of milk, symbolizing the beginning of a journey towards maturity. 
Paul says that um, I've laid eyes on you and what I'm seeing is that there is this prolonging of immaturity. And the prolongment is the evidences or it's evidenced in um, the fact that there's jealousy and envy still among you. Uh, I think sometimes we think of jealousy simply in terms of uh, me seeing somebody with a Lamborghini and me not having that. And me wanting that and feeling like I deserve that. Well, I think in the context of the church, we can often uh, identify jealousy in how quickly or how content we are when God elevates somebody else and doesn't elevate us. That our jealousy and envy often shows up in the reality of uh, us looking at what God has done in other people's lives and being completely discontent with where he has us. And then entitlement comes in of thinking that God owes me something or he's withholding something from me that I ultimately deserve. If we're selective in applying the providence and sovereignty of God to our lives, where God is sovereign over some things, but he's not sovereign over others, then I think we make the mistake or we find ourselves in error into thinking that, that, that if we don't have something, that that is a sign that God doesn't either, that uh, that, that is a sign or it points to the reality um, that God is withholding something good and not that maybe that's something that God doesn't think is good for your life. We have to ask ourselves, well, if God is good and I don't have something that I want, either it is a not now or it's a not at all. Jealousy is simply, um, it is simply the evidence of discontentment with God, and envy is the expression of that discontentment. Envy is, I'm coveting what God has given you. And we know this in the simple statements such as, I should have, I should be, I would be if. And all those things just point to, God, I'm having a hard time trusting you. God, I'm having a hard time uh, waiting on you. God, I'm having a hard time of thinking the best of you. Paul says that these things are just exposing that, that there's something going on inside of us that is just disconnected from who God has said he is and wants to be for our lives. I've said this earlier, but I want to press into this, that when God exposes our sin, it's not to shame us. We were talking this past Thursday, and a sister said, man, in the last week, God had just been bringing back to my attention the sins and the, and the, and the lifestyle that he had delivered me from. And it was in that moment that I was tempted to look at my life and say, man, God, I'm embarrassed by that. But then in that moment, he then reminded her, no, 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 the purpose of me for you recalling what I've done in your life and where I've brought you is so that you would be able to recognize and be thankful for the ways that I have used your life to give me glory. It allows for a church to say, I don't have to hide my testimony from other people. I don't have to be embarrassed of who I used to, even though I'm not at the place, at the final place of where I would hope to be. And then it allows us now to take attention off of self and to put it on the God to say simply, God, I want you to even use the ugliness 
I want to even be able to show that the ugliness of my life, how, how deep down you had to come to grab me. How, how much of the muck and mire you had to, had, had to sift through in order to grab me and snatch me out. And that even though right now it may seem that the enemy may remind me of, no, 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 you still got some blemishes on you. You still got some dirt. I can testify to say, no, but because of the blood of Christ, I've been made clean. When we think of the mercy of God, sometimes we just, uh, we think that mercy is something that can be exhaustible. We think that mercy is something that God runs out of. That there are people like the Corinthians here. There are people who, um, the only reason why you're not a single parent right now is not because you didn't do the deed. It's because God's mercies intervened. There are people here today that the only reason you're not addicted to what you've been indulging in for years is not because of your own self-control. It's because of the mercies of God intervening. How many of God's mercies have kept us from actually experiencing the consequences of our own sins? The beauty of the gospel, what Paul's going to transition us into, is it's the reality that um, regardless of the misplacement of our identity, God's grace is sufficient enough and his mercies are prevalent enough that we can transition from looking at how far we may have drifted off to and we can now be reoriented back to the place in where God would have us to be. That our, the misplacement of our identity is something that, that, that just temporarily can be put off or, or, or something that we can feel like we've lost. But it's never too far. Um, it's never too far from the ability of God's grace to then reorient us and bring it back to us so that we find it once again. Verses 4 through 17, it is simply the reality that misplaced identity can be found again uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read everything. I'm just going to highlight the key points that Paul wants to bring to our attention. One, he wants to say, um, it's not enough to be ignorant. It's not enough for us to remain ignorant about the dangers uh, of the things that we give ourselves to outside of God. That we have to see them for what they truly are. So in verse 4, he says, he says or he points to uh, the essence of our idols. That they promise a freedom to us, but they treat us as if we're slaves. He says, what, what then is Apollos? Or for whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like a mere human? It's interesting that Paul doesn't use language like, uh, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul. But he says, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. You see, that word belong means that they, they, they see themselves as the property of these people. That when we give ourselves to idols, it often goes from admiration to obligation. It goes from recognition to now identification. It's a slippery slope because we think and we approach it as if, man, nothing really bad is going to happen to me. It's okay to admire people, which it is. But some of our faiths have been built on the backs of our favorite teachers or our worship leaders. 
in such a way to where we know more, we know how to recite more uh, John Piper sermons than we do the actual Bible. We know how to recite more Priscilla Shire or Tony Evans uh, 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 devotionals and, 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 and sermons that we've heard at conferences than we actually know the words of Jesus Christ. And when we build our faith, when we build our faith on the backs of personalities, what ultimately will happen is that when something, uh, when, when, that, when those things get snatched out from, um, from underneath us, our faith then comes crumbling right thereafter. How many people know or have friends who, during the heightened tensions of social justice and evangelical Christian culture, we're so disappointed with the leaders or the people who have been propped up in society that they punted their faith altogether. You have to ask yourself, what would make you allow a human being to be the key determiner of your faith? Unless the, in God's mercy, he was exposing the idolatry of your Christian celebritized gifts. Thank you, Alexandria, for the wave. I think we just, we just sometimes, man, we don't realize that, man, like, as good and as much of a blessing are God's gifts to his church. They are never meant to replace God. They're never meant to replace God. And so Paul is going to use the rest of this time, the rest of this text to just do one thing. He says, I need you to look a little bit further, y'all. I know that you're attributing glory to human beings as if they were the actual person that saved you, that called you, that laid the foundation of their faith. No, no, I want you to see a little bit further. For those of us, I don't even know if they put these on the new cars anymore because we've got cameras, but old school cars, they would have this sign on our side mirrors that would say, objects, are, uh, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. And the reason why it was present is because while these mirrors uh, and their curvation gave them a useful way to see or observe their surroundings, uh, they didn't always tell the full story. You see, some of the objects that appeared smaller and seemed further away than they actually were uh, might have a driver in its haste make a rash decision to go into another lane only to find that there was a car right next, right next to them the entire time. Um, the book of Corinthians is really meant to point to how our human wisdom doesn't actually, or, our, or how our human wisdom um, really serves us in the same way that our side mirror of the car does. It only allows us to see a, uh, a distorted view of what's actually taking place. While it may seem useful in appealing to our senses, while it may seem useful to kind of help see uh, some of the danger that may be around, the danger in it is actually that it points to God appearing smaller and further than he actually is in our lives. And because God seems further and smaller, we then begin to say, well, God, you've abandoned me. God, you must have forgotten me. God, I must have done something wrong in my life. And so therefore, it's keeping me from having true intimacy or even knowledge of your will for my life. And so therefore, I'm going to make the decision to just pivot a little bit and to go in the direction that seems right in my eyes rather than right in your eyes. He says, what then, Apollos? What then, Paul? That they are actually servants whom you believe. Why does he tell them that? 
that they are servants in whom you believed. He says this, that God ultimately is the originator of our faith. In a room like this, we would probably all agree that, yes, yeah, yeah, we know that God has saved us. We know that God is the one who had purchased us. But how often do we forget God's work in our actual lives? How often do you actually think about your testimony? How often or do, who in your life do you have that, that can see how, what your life looked like two years ago to what it looks like now and say, man, I've seen God's grace in your life, that you are not the same person. Paul has to remind them that, that though God uses uh, servants as a means to come to belief, that ultimately is God's hand and his power at work in order to produce belief. We've got to be reminded that God, Jesus Christ, is our redeemer. That he is the one in which the only name in which salvation can come is through the name of Jesus Christ. For it is from him and to him and through them that all things transpire. And so when we look to uh, give um, uh, when we look to give credit to something other than God, what we're testifying is, is that we don't fully believe that God did what he actually said he did. But not only that, he says that in me being the originator of your faith, I want you to see my hand, but I also want to see my purposes. Verses eight and nine is the sign to us that God is not one who works against himself. In a church, we have to be careful of thinking somehow that because there's diversity in gifts, diversity of people as a whole, that sometimes our differences are things that should divide us rather than to bring us together. What sense does it make for a farmer who is tilling the ground to be beefing with the person who's coming behind to water it? What, what, who looks out into a field and sees farmers fighting with each other over who gets the water and who gets the plant? He's intentional with the, with the uh, in some ways, the sarcasm, y'all, of saying, yo, make, help it make sense. You think that I'm against Apollos? Apollos may have tilled the ground, but God allowed me to come and to water it. But y'all, it is God who brought the increase. Isn't the beauty of God's church that we as a people can really rest in the identity that Christ has given me so much so that we celebrate the differences of other people rather than put them down? That we applaud the fact that everybody isn't going to be up here preaching from the stage, but there are those who have a preaching gift and are ministering to use and eyes in the actual everyday life of the church. That the, that the titles mean nothing. If you feel you can only serve God if he gives you a title, you have to ask yourself the question, is it about my kingdom or is it about his? Paul says, yo, y'all are, not, y'all are y'all focusing on the tree instead of the bigger picture of the forest. God is about his work. God is not about your self-exaltation. God is about us being faithful and recognizing that all of us have a role that we play in the kingdom of God. There's not an A team and a B team. There's not even a bench. 
And, and, and I say that because some of us, we've relegated ourselves to just sitting on the bench, just being glad to be on the team. I remember Russell Wilson, uh, Russell Westbrook, Brooke and uh, Patrick Beverly, uh, they were salty last year because they got kicked off the team. And so they, they had the audacity to say that if the Lakers won the championship, that they felt they, they were entitled to get a ring. Bro, you're the reason why we were struggling. You're not entitled to the ring. The reality, though, for us is that God has called us to so much more than just be sitting on the bench. He's called us to so much more than just be comfortable with, I'm going to heaven, so let me go about my business and just do what I want to do. That God's calling on our lives is for us to participate in his work. This is who God is, that success is not determined by our productivity. Success is determined by our faithfulness. Paul will go down and he'll just list out, man, really just pointing to the Bama seat of Christ, that all of our works, that we want to we want to give up, we want to give credit and we want to be the ultimate judge about who's fruitful and who is who's the best. And who, we, we look on the outside and we make judgments and determinations about, about who God's favorites are. God will say, no, 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 it's about I, I want you all to understand that for every believer. Everything that you do in this life matters. You may be able to fool other people when it comes to the good works that you call yourself doing. But there will be a day where each one of those works pass through the fire of God's righteousness. And God will be the one who makes determinations about whether or not your service and your work was for his glory or your own. And that's not meant to scare us. That's really meant to invite us to put our hands on the plow. That's really meant for us to say, you know what, God, I've, I've lived for myself long enough. I've done things my way long enough. You've actually, you actually have opportunity for me to have riches and to gain treasures and to, in a life where none of those things will actually perish or disappear. Isn't that better than placing our identity in the applause of our boss? in the opinions of people who don't even know us, in the accomplishments of being able to buy a car that once you drive it off the, off the lot, it depreciates in value significantly, in a home that in an instant could be burnt down to the ground, and insurance say, well, it looks like there was a problem, we're not gonna cover that, and you have no means of fighting against it. Paul is saying what God wants for us is to, is, is to understand that all of, all of God's people's works will be appraised on the value system of, God's, of who God is and the sincerity of our hearts. And if we care about that, we don't have to look elsewhere. We can just focus our attention and just be about the work. Life is too short to waste it on things that don't provide us with actual security. It's too short. And lastly, verse 16, he says, don't you, selves know, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you and that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 
For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are, that we are God's temple. We are the very place that God has um, provided perfect security in. That the mere fact that you have the presence of God through the indwelling of your spirit means that there is nothing that you can do. Nothing that you can do to cause your God to remove himself from your life. Nothing. If you didn't earn it, then you can't lose it. It was given. Everything else outside of God you can lose. It's dependent on you. The free gift of the gospel is that God gives you his love. He gives you his mercies. He gives you relationship. He gives you all of himself. And no matter what you do, you can't lose it. I think that we don't sit with that enough because we're so used to striving. We're so used to trying that if mommy and daddy didn't tell me they love me enough, we feel as though their love has disappeared. And if that girl or that boy that we loved and we gave ourselves to rejects us, we question whether or not we are lovable in and of ourselves. That occupation, if that boss doesn't promote us or we don't excel, we feel as though we're unworthy to even be Someone to even continue pursuing that occupation. Everything is fragile. But God gives the spirit to remind us that I am faithful even when you're faithless. That you can't lose what I've given you. And if we can't lose it, what it, what sense does it make for us to keep running this rat race? Operating with God in a transactional way. That if I do good, God, that you're going to bless me better. I'm going to get more of your love. I'm going to... That's not how our relationship with God should operate. Paul is saying that the grace, the goodness, the spirit of God that's been giving to us is meant to remind you that you, because you have the spirit, you are the physical embodiment. As a people, I don't want you to... I don't want you to hear this and think individual. I want you to think collective. That we are the physical representations of who God is. So that when we misplace our identity, the gospel then comes up and says, no, let me remind you of who you are in God's eyes. And then each and every day we live not for the opinion of people, but we live from the opinion of God towards us. As hard as that is to rest in, that is the fight of the Christian life. Resting in what God has said about me, what God has said about us. And from that place, working from love to be and to prioritize what God has invited us into as co-laborers, as fellow workers, as his field and his building that God is putting together, that God is building for himself so that the world can look on the body of Christ and say, those people know God. 
Let us pray.